15. Ray of Malaget pepper, in grain and in its pods as it grows, which delighted us, as the current prevented our going farther, and even grew stronger, we put back and came to a land where there were groves of palms near the shore with their branches broken, so tall that from a distance I thought they were the masts or spars of Negroes' vessels, so we went there and found a great plain covered with hay and more than 5,000 animals like stags, but larger, who showed no fear of us. Five elephants came out of a small river that was fringed by trees, three full grown, with two young ones, and on the shore we saw holes of crocodiles in plenty. We went back to the ships and next day made our way from Cape Verde and saw the broad mouth of a great river, three leagues in width, which we entered and guessed to be the Gambia. Here wind and tide were in our favor, so we came to a small island in midstream and rested there the night. In the morning we went farther in and saw a crowd of canoes full of men who fled at the sight of us, for it was they who had killed Nuno Tristam and his men. Next day we saw beyond the point of the river some natives on the right-hand bank, who welcomed us. Their chief was called Frame Gazak and he was the nephew of Pharaoh Sangul, the great prince of the Negroes. There they gave us 180 pounds worth of gold, in exchange for our goods. The lord of the country had a Negro with him named Buka, who knew the tongue only of Negroland, and finding him perfectly truthful. I asked him to go with me to Cantor and promised him all he needed. I made the same promise to his chief and kept it. We went up the river as far as Cantor, which is a large town near the riverside. Farther than this the ships could not go, because of the thick growth of trees and underwood. But here I made it known that I had come to exchange merchandise, and the natives came to me in very great numbers. When the news spread through the country that the Christians were in Cantor, they came from Tambucado in the north from Mount Jello in the south, and from Quecun, which is a great city, with a wall of baked tiles, here, too, I was told, there is gold in plenty and caravans of camels cross over there with goods from Carthage, Tunis, Fez, Cairo and all the land of the Saracens, these are exchanged for gold, which comes from the mines on the other side of Sierra Leone, they said that range ran southwards, which pleased me very greatly, because all the rivers coming from thence, as far as could be known, ran westward, but they told me that other very large rivers ran eastward from the other side of the ridge, there was also, they said, east of these mountains, a great lake, narrow and long, on which sailed canoes like ships, the people on the opposite sides of this lake were always at war, and those on the eastern side were white, when I asked who ruled in those parts, they answered that one chief was a negro, but towards the east was a greater lord who had conquered the Negroes a short time before. A Saracen told me he had been all through that land and had been present at the fighting, and when I told this to the prince, he said that a merchant in Iran had written him two months before about this very war, and that he believed it. Such were the things told me by the Negroes at Cantor, I asked them about the road to the gold country, and who were the lords of that country. They told me the kin lived in Kukia and was lord of all the mines on the right side of the river of Cantor, and that he had before the door of his palace a mass of gold just as it was taken from the earth, so large that twenty men could hardly move it, and that the king always fastened his horse to it and kept it as a curiosity on account of its size and purity. The nobles of his court wore in their nostrils and ears ornaments of gold. The parts to the east were full of gold mines, but the men who went into the pits to get gold did not live long, because of the foul air. The gold sand was given to a woman to wash the gold from it. I inquired the road from Cantor to Kukia and was told the road ran eastward, where was great abundance of gold, as I can well believe. 
for I saw the Negroes who went by those roads laden with it. While I was thus trafficking with these Negroes of Cantor, my men became worn out with the heat and so we returned towards the ocean. After I had gone down the river fifty leagues, they told me of a great chief living on the south side, who wished to speak with me. We met in a great wood on the bank, and he brought with him a vast throng of people armed with poisoned arrows, assegais, swords and shields, and I went to him, carrying some presents and biscuit and some of our wine, for they had no wine except that made from the date palm, and he was pleased and extremely gracious, giving me three negroes and swearing to me by the one only God that he would never again make war against Christians, but that they might trade and travel safely through all his country. Being desirous of putting to proof the oath of his, I sent a certain Indian named Jacob whom the prince had sent with us, in order that in the event of our reaching India, he might be able to hold speech with the natives, and I ordered him to go to the place called al with the lord of that country, to find Mount Jelu and Timbuktu through the land of Jalatha. A knight had gone there with him before. This Jacob, the Indian, told me that al was a very evil land, having a river of sweet water and abundance of lemons, and some of these he brought to me, and the lord of that country sent me elephants teeth and four negroes, who carried one great ivory tusk to the ship. Now the houses here are made of seaweed, covered with straw, and while I stayed here at the river mouth three days, I learned that all the mischief that had been done to the Christians had been done by a certain king called Nomi Mansa, who has the country near the great headland by the mouth of the river Gambia, so I took great pains to make peace with him, and sent him many presents by his own men in his own canoes, which were going for salt along the coast to his own country, for the salt is plentiful there and of a red color. Now Nomi Mansa was in great fear of the Christians, lest they should take vengeance upon him. Then I went on to a great harbor where I had many Negroes come to me, sent by Nomi Mansa to see if I should do anything, but I always treated them kindly. When the king heard this, he came to the riverside with a great force and sitting down on the bank, sent for me, and so I went and paid him all respect. There was a bishop there of his own faith who asked me about the God of the Christians and I answered him as God had given me to know, and then I questioned him about Mahomet, who may believe, at last the king was so pleased with what I said that he sprang to his feet and ordered the bishop to leave his country within three days, and swore that he would kill anyone who should speak the name of Mahomet from that day forward, for he said he trusted in the one only God and there was no other but he, whom his brother Prince Henry worshipped, then calling the infant his brother, he asked me to baptize him and all his lords and women. He himself would have no other name than Henry, but his nobles took our names, like James and Nuno. So I remained on shore that night with the king but did not baptize him, as I was a layman. But next day I begged the king with his twelve chief men and eight of his wives to dine with me on my caravel, and they all came and armed and I gave them fowls and meat and wine, white and red, as much as they could drink and they said to one another that no people were better than the Christians. Then again on shore the king asked me to baptize him but I said I had not leave from the Pope, but I would tell the prince, who would send a priest. So Nomi Mansa at once wrote to Prince Henry to send him a priest and someone to teach him the faith, and begged him to send him a falcon with the priest, for he was amazed when I told him how we carried a bird on the hand to catch other birds and with these he asked the prince to send him to rams and sheep and geese and ganders and a pig, and to men to build houses and plan out his town, and all these wishes of his I promised him that the prince would grant, and he and all his people made a great noise at my going but I left the king at Gambia and started back for Portugal, 
one caravel I sent straight home, but with the others I sailed to Cape Verde, and as we came near the seashore we saw two canoes putting out to sea, but we sailed between them and the shore, and so cut them off. Then the interpreter came to me and said that Bezegishi, the lord of the land and an evil man, was in one of them, so I made them come into the caravel and gave them to eat and drink with a double share of presents, and making as if I did not know him to be the chief. I said is this the land of Bezegishi? He answered yes, it is, and I too tried him, exclaimed why is he so bitter against the Christians? He would do far better to have peace with them, so that they might trade in his land and bring him horses and other things as they do for other lords of the Negroes. Go and tell your lord Bezegishi that I have taken you and for love of him have let you go. At this he was very cheerful and he and his men got into their canoes, as I bade them, and as they all were standing by the side of the caravel, I called out Bezegishi, Bezegishi, do not think I did not know thee. I could have done to thee what I would, and now, as I have done to thee, do thou also to our Christians. So they went off and we came back to Orgin and the Isle of the Herons, where we found flocks of birds of every kind, and after this came home to Alagos, where the prince was very glad of our return. Then after this for two years no one went to Guinea, because King Afonso was at war in Africa and the prince was quite taken up with us, but after he had come back from Alcacar, I reminded him of what King Nomi Mansa had asked of him, and the prince sent him all he had promised, with a priest, the abbot of Soto de Casa and a young man of his household named John Delgado. This was in 1458. Two years afterwards King Afonso equipped a large caravel and sent me out as captain, and I took with me ten horses and went to the land of the Barbassans, which is near the land of Nomi Manza. And these Barbassans had two kings, but the king of Portugal gave me power over all the shores of that sea, that any ships I might find off the coast of Guinea should be under me, for he knew that there were those who sold arms to the Moors and he bade me to see such and bring them bound to Portugal, and by the help of God I came in twelve days to this land of the Barbassans, and found two ships there, one under Gonzalo Ferreira, of Oporto, of the household of Prince Henry, that was conveying horses, the other was under Antonio de Noli, of Genoa, these merchants injured our trade very much, for the natives used to give twelve negroes for one horse, and now gave only six, and while we were there, a caravel came from Gambia, which brought us news that a captain called de Prado was coming with a richly laden ship, and I ordered Ferreira to go to Cape Verde and look for that ship and seize it, on pain of death and loss of all his goods, and he did so, and we found a great prize, which I sent home with Ferreira to the king, and then I and Antonio de Noli left that coast, and sailed two days and one night towards Portugal, and we sighted islands in the ocean, and as my ship was lighter and faster than the rest, I came first to one of those islands, to a good harbor, with a beach of white sand, where I anchored. I told all my men and the other captains that I wished to be first to a land, and so I did. We saw no trace of natives, and called the island Santiago, as it is still known. There were plenty of fish there and many strange birds, so tame that we killed them with sticks, and I had a quadrant with me, and wrote on the table of it the altitude of the Arctic Pole, and I found it better than the chart. For though you see your course of sailing on the chart well enough, yet if once you get wrong, it is hard by map alone to work back into the right course. After this we saw one of the Canary Islands, called Palma, and so came to the island of Madeira, and then adverse winds drove me to the Azores. But Antonio de Noli stayed at Madeira, and, catching the right breeze, 
he got to Portugal before me, and begged of the king the captain key of the island of Santiago, which I had found, and the king gave it him, and he kept it till his death, but the Prado, who had carried arms to the Moors, lay in irons and the king ordered him to be brought out, and then they martyrized him in a cart, and threw him into the fire alive with his sword and bold, chapter XIX, Henry's last years and death, 1458-60, while Guitimosto and Diego Gomez were carrying the prince's flag farther from the shores of Europe than Alexander or Caesar had ever ventured, the prince himself was getting more and more absorbed in the project of a new holy war against the infidel, the fall of Constantinople in 1453 into the hands of the Ottoman Turks, had at least the effect of frightening and almost of rousing Western Christendom at large. In the most miserably divided of Latin states there was now a talk about doing great things, though the time, the spirit for actually doing them, had long passed by, or was not yet come. Spain, the one part of the Western Church and state, which was still living in the crusading fervor of the 12th century, was alone ready for action. The Portuguese kingdom in particular, under Afonso V had been keeping up a regular crusade in Morocco, and was willing and eager to spend men and treasure in a great Levantine enterprise. So the Pope's legate was welcomed when he came in 1457 to preach the Holy War. Afonso promised to keep up an army of 12,000 men for war against the Ottoman, and struck a new gold coinage the Cruzado to commemorate the year of deliverance. But Portugal by itself could not deliver New Rome or the Holy Land and when the other powers of the West refused to move, Afonso had to content himself with the old crusade in Africa, but he now pushed on even more zealously than before his favorite ambition, a land empire on both sides of the straits, and Prince Henry's last appearance in public service was in his nephew's camp in the Morocco campaign of 1458, in the siege of El Cacar the Little, the Lord Infant forced the batteries, mounted the guns, and took charge of the general conduct of the siege. A breach was soon made in the walls, and the town surrendered on easy terms, for it was not, said Henry, to take their goods or force a ransom from them that the king of Portugal had come against them, but for the service of God, they were only to leave behind in Alcacar their Christian prisoners, for themselves, they might go, with their wives, their children, and their property, the stout heart veteran Edward Menezes became governor of Alcacar and held the town with his own desperate courage against all attempts to recover it. When the besiegers offered him terms, he offered them in return his scaling ladders that they might have a fair chance. When they were raising the siege he sent them a message. Would they not try a little longer? It had been a very short affair. Meantime Henry, returning to Europe by way of Ceuta, re-entered his own town of Sagres for the last time. His work was nearly done, and indeed, of that work there only remains one thing to notice. The great Venetian map, known as the Canaldlees Chart of Fra Moro, executed in the convent of Murano just outside Venice, is not only the crowning specimen of medieval draftsmanship, but the scientific review of the prince's exploration, as Henry himself closes the Middle Age of exploration and begins the modern. So this map, the picture and proof of his discoveries, is not only the last of the older type of plan, but the first of the new style the style which applied the accurate and careful methods of Portlano drawing to a scheme of the whole world, it is the first scientific Ellis, but its scale is too vast for anything of a detailed account, it measures six feet four inches across, and in every part it is crammed with detail, the work of three years of incessant labor 1457-9 from Andrea Biodco and all the first coasters and draftsmen of the time, in general, 
There is an external carefulness as well as gorgeousness about the workmanship, the coasts, especially in the Mediterranean and along the west coast of Europe, would almost suit a modern admiralty chart, while its notice, the first notice, of Prince Henry's African and Atlantic discoveries is the special point of the whole work. There is a certain disposition to exaggerate the size of rivers, mountains, towns, and the whole proportion of things. As we get farther away from the well-known ground of Europe, Russia and the north and northeast of Asia are somewhat too large, but along the central belt, it is fair to say that the whole of the country west of the Caspian is thoroughly sound, the best thing yet done in any projection. No one could look at Framore's map and fail to see at a glance a picture of the old world, and the more it is looked at, the more reliable it will prove to be. By the side of all earlier essays in this field, no one can look at the Arabic maps and their imitations in medieval Christendom, whether conscious or unconscious as in the Spanish example of 1109. Without despair, it is almost hopeless to try and recognize in these anything of the shape, the proportions or the distribution of the parts of the world which are named, and which one might almost fancy it was meant to represent at the time. Place the map of 1459 by the side of the Hereford map of 1400 or of a dry size scheme of 1130 made at the Christian court of Sicily, or in fact beside any of the theoretical maps of the thousand years that had gone to make the Italy and the Spain of Fra Moro and Prince Henry, and it will seem to be almost absurd to ask the question, do these belong to the same civilization? in any kind of way, what would the higher criticism answer, out of its infallible internal evidence tests, of course, these are quite different, the one is nearly a collection of the scratchings of savages, the other is the prototype of modern maps, yet the Christian world is answerable for both kinds, it had struggled through ignorance and superstition and tradition into clearer light and truer knowledge, and when Greek geography came to be reprinted and revived, this was in part at least a consequence of that revival of true science which had begun in that very dark time, the night of the 12th century, where we are not likely to see any signs of dawn till we look, not so much at what is written now, as at what the poor besotted savages of the ages of Adelar and Bernard and Aquinas and Dante have left to bear witness of themselves, between Henry's return from Alcacar and his death, while the great Venetian map was in making, two years went by years in which Diego Gomez was finding the Cape Verde Islands and pushing the farthest south of European discovery still farther south, but of the prince's own working, apart from that of his draftsmen, we have little or nothing, but a set of charters, these charters were concerned with the trade profits of the Guinea commerce and the settlers in the newfound lands off the continent Madeira, the Azores, the Canaries, and had an interest as being a sort of last will and testament of the prince to his nation, settling his colonies providing for the working of the lands he had explored, before it should be too late. Already on the 7th June, 1454, Afonso had granted to the Order of Christ, for the explorations, made and to be made at the expense of the aforesaid order, the spiritual jurisdiction of Guinea, Nubia, and Ethiopia, with all rights as exercised in Europe and at the mother house of Tomer. Now on the 28th December, 1458. Prince Henry granted, in his town, that, the said order should receive one-twentieth of all merchandise from Guinea, slaves, gold and all other articles, the rest of the profit to fall to the prince's successor in this, kingdom of the seas, in the same way on the 18th September, 1460, the prince grants away the church revenues of Porto Santo and Madeira to the order of Christ, and the temporalities to the crown of Portugal, it was his to give, for by royal decree of September 15th, 
1448, the whole control of the African and ocean trade and colonies had been expressly conferred upon the infant. No ships as we have seen could sail beyond Bajander without his permit, whoever transgressed this forfeited his ship, and all ships sailing with his permit were obliged to pay him one-fifth or one-tenth of the value of their freight. But the end was in sight. The prince was now sixty-six, and he had spent himself too strenuously for there to be much hope of a long life in him. Of late years, pressed by the increasing claims of his work, he had borrowed enormous sums from his half-brother, the millionaire Duke of Braganza. Now his body failed him like his treasures. What we know of his death is mainly from his body servant, Captain Diego Gomez, who was with him at the last. In the year of Christ 1460, the Lord Infant Henry fell sick in his own town, on Cape Street Vincent, and of that sickness he died on Thursday, November 13th, in the self-same year, and King Afonso, who was then at Evora with all his men, made great mourning on the death of a prince so mighty, who had sent out so many fleets and had won so much from Negro land, and had fought so constantly against the Saracens for the faith, and at the end of the year, the king bade me come to him, now till then I had stayed in Lagos by the body of the prince my lord, which had been carried into the church of St. Mary in that town, and I was bidden to look and see if the body of the prince were at all corrupted, for it was the wish of the king to remove it to the monastery of Batala which D. Henry's father King John had built, but when I came and looked at the body, I found it dry and sound, clad in a rough shirt of horse hair, welled up the church repeat thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption, for how the Lord infant had been chased, a virgin to the day of his death, and what and how many good deeds he had done in his life, is to be remembered, though it is not for me here to speak of this, for that would be a long tale, but the King Afonso had the body of his uncle carried to Batel and laid in the chapel that King John had built where also lie buried the aforesaid King John and his Queen Philippa, mother of my lord the prince, and all the five brothers of the infant. He was brawny and large of frame, says Azurara, strong of limb as any. His complexion was fair by nature, but by his constant toil and exposure of himself it had become quite dark. His face was stern and one angry, very terrible, brave as he was in heart and keen in mind. He had a passion for the doing of great things. Luxury and avarice never found lodgment within him, for from a youth, he quite left off the use of wine, and more than this, as it was commonly reported, he passed all his days in unbroken chastity, he was so generous that no other uncrowned prince in Europe had so noble a household, so large and splendid a school for the young nobles of his country, for all the best men of his nation and still more those who came to him from foreign lands were welcomed at his court so that often the medley of tongues and peoples and customs to be heard and seen there was a wonder, and none who worthily came to him left the court without some proof of his kindness, only to himself was he severe, all his days were spent in work, and it would not easily be believed how often he passed the night without sleep, so that by his untiring industry he conquered the impossibilities of other men, his virtues and graces it is too much to reckon up, wise and thoughtful, of wonderful knowledge and calm bearing, courteous in language and manner and most dignified in address, yet no subject of the lowest rank could show more obedience and respect to his sovereign than this uncle to his nephew, from the very beginning of his reign, while King Afonso was still a minor, constant in adversity and humble in prosperity, my lord the infant never cherished hatred or ill will against any, even though they had grievously offended him, so that some, who spoke as if they knew everything, said that he was wanting in retributive justice, though in all other ways most impartial, 
Thus they complained that he forgave some of his soldiers who deserted him in the attack on Tangier, when he was in the greatest danger. He was wholly given up to the public service, and was always glad to try new plans for the welfare of the kingdom at his own expense. He gloried in warfare against the infidels and in keeping peace with all Christians, and so he was loved by all, for he loved all, never injuring any, nor failing in due respect and courtesy towards any person however humble, without forgetting his own position. A foul or indecent word was never heard to issue from his lips, to Holy Church, above all. He was most obedient, attending all its services and in his own chapel causing them to be rendered as solemnly as in any cathedral church. All holy things he reverenced, and he delighted to show honor and to do kindness to all the ministers of religion. Nearly one half of the year was passed by him in fasting, and the hands of the poor never went out empty from his presence. His heart never knew fear except the fear of sin. Chapter XX The Results of Prince Henry's Work Henry's own life is in one way the least important part of him. We have seen how many were the lines of history and of progress in Christendom, in Portugal, in science that met in him, how Greek and Arabic geography, both knowledge and practical exploration, was as much a part of what he found to work with as the memoirs of Christian pilgrims, traders, and travelers for a thousand years, how the exploring and expanding energy which the Northmen poured into Europe, leading directly to the crusading movement was producing in the Portugal of the 15th century the very same results as in the France and Italy and England of the 12th and 13th, and now, on the failure of the Syrian Crusades, the Spanish counterpart of those Crusades, the greatest of social and religious upheavals in the Middle Ages, had reached such a point of success that the victorious Christians of Spain could look out for new worlds to conquer. Again we have seen how the 12th, 13th, and 14th century progress in science especially in geographical maps and plans, the great extension of land travel and the new beginnings of ocean voyaging during the same time, must be taken into any view of the prince's life and work. We have now to look for a moment at the immense results of that same life which had so vast and so long a preparation, for just as we cannot see how that work of his could have been done without each and every part of that many-sided preparation in the history of the past. So it is quite as difficult to see how the great achievements of the generation that followed him and of the century, that wonderful 16th century, which followed the age of Henry's courtiers and disciples, could have been realized without the impetus he had given and the knowledge he had spread, for it was not merely that his seamen had broken down the middle wall of superstitious terror and had pierced through into the unknown south for a distance of nearly 2,000 miles. It was not merely that between 1412 and 1460 euros passed the limits of the west and of the south, as legend had so long fixed them, not merely that the most difficult part of the African coast, between Dodger and the Gulf of Guinea, had been fairly passed and that the waterway to India was more than half found. This was true enough. When Vasco Diagama was once round the South Cape, he soon found himself not in an unknown and intraverse ocean but embarked upon one of the great trade routes of the Mahometan world, the main part of the distance between the prince's farthest and the southern Cape of Good Hope, was passed in two voyages, in four years 1482-6, but there was more than this, Henry did not only accomplish the first and most difficult steps of his own great central project, the finding of the way round Africa to India, he not only began the conversion of the natives, the civilization of the coast tribes and the colonization of certain trading sites, he also founded that school of thought and practice which made all the great discoveries that had so utterly eclipsed his own. 
From that school came Columbus, who found a western route to India, starting from the suggestion of Henry's attempt by south and east, Bartholomew Dias, who reached and rounded the southernmost point of the Old World continent and laid open the Indian Ocean to European sailors, Diegima, who was the first of those sailors to reap the full advantage of the work of ninety years, the first who sailed from Lisbon to Calicut and back again, Albuquerque, who founded the first colonial empire of modern Europe, the first great outsettlement of Christendom, the Portuguese trade dominion in the east, Magellan, who finally proved what all the great discoverers were really assuming the roundness of the world, the nameless adventurers who seem to have touched Australia some time before 1530, the draftsmen who left us our first true map of the globe, so it is not in the actual things done by the prince's efforts that we can measure his importance in history, it is because his work was infinitely suggestive, because he laid a right foundation for the onward movement of Europe and Christendom, because he was the leader of a true renaissance and reformation, that he is so much more than a figure in the story of Portugal. Illustration, Columbus A.S.S. Christopher, carrying the Christian faith, in the form of the infant Jesus, across the ocean. There are figures which are of national interest, there are others which are less than that. Figures of family or provincial importance, others again which are always dear to us as human beings as men who felt the ordinary wants and passions and lived the ordinary life of men with a brilliancy and an intense power that was all their own, there are other men who stand out as those who had changed more or less, but changed vitally and really, the course of the world's history, without whom the whole of our modern society, our boasted civilization, would have been profoundly different, for after all the modern Christian world of Europe has something to boast of, though its writers spend much of their time in reviling and decrying it, it is something that our Western world has seen.